0: advertising week is proud to present Great Minds People and Culture, a podcast dedicated to exploring the art of intentional leadership during times of change. The goal of Great Minds People and Culture is to provide our audience with practical strategies, reliable data, and tangible advice as we look to empower leaders seeking to make a positive impact. Each 30-minute episode of People and Culture is a deep dive into the intricacies of effective leadership, featuring insightful conversations with experts and thought leaders. Great Minds, People and Culture premieres September 2023 and will be available through your podcast store of choice and at advertisingweek.com.
1: Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Chaucer Barnes. Chaucer is the Chief Marketing Officer of United Masters and Translation. He is uh, an absolute jewel of a thought leader in our industry. We last saw each other, Chaucer, in Johannesburg at Advertising Week Africa, and we were thrilled to have you there and really delighted to have you here today on Great Minds. So welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So, Chaucer, there's a lot of places to start with you and rather than do what we usually do which is go back, I want to start in the present moment and you have become sort of the industry's go-to for conversation around culture and the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. I know you've written a lot on the subject, you've Mm -hmm. spoken a lot on the subject um there's been a lot of celebratory events the new museum of course in the bronx but i'd love to just start by talking about this particular interesting moment in time as we celebrate something that is a truly original american form of music much like back in the day jazz was a uniquely american form much like the music that comes out of the great state of louisiana and the great city of new orleans is uniquely American and talk about where we are right now and your thoughts and reflections on the 50th anniversary as a bellwether of where we are and sadly where we are not as a culture.
0: Yeah. Look, I'm happy to uh, go go into all of that. I look, the first thing to know about me and hip hop is that uh, I think I speak on behalf of a generation that is right in between. So my generation was privileged to see hip hop outgrow its status as simply a music genre, right? And it really became, what we witnessed as young adults and then as young professionals was hip hop becoming so culturally ubiquitous that it terraformed all these other cultural theaters, right? Sports, social justice, you name it, right? And part of the reason that hip hop was uniquely credentialed to do that was it's twofold. It wasn't just that it was popular, because to your point, right? Jazz was super popular. That was the voice of youth at one time. Rock and roll was the voice of youth at one time. But it importantly, take rock and roll, which is an aesthetic movement and a political movement that seems to have effectively petered out, but not the music. What you have there is largely, and you think about the 60s, 70s, where rock and roll, it was enjoyed primacy as the language of the youth. Uh, it was not an autobiographical art form. And so when you get to hip hop and you start to see characters who are at first just sharing the way that they live and then eventually sharing narratives that they have to live up to, which me, I just turned 43. so. I was from the era where you know hip hop had his Warholian moment when Kanye West and Fifty Cent were staring at each other on that Rolling Stone cover because what Fifty Cent represented was the verisimilitude, right? Like the reality rap of effectively gangster rap. This guy got shot eleven times in order to become one of the biggest rappers in the world, and that was really the path for so many people. You had to prove with your light, with your lived experience the lyrics that you wrote down, right? And what Kanye West represented was that move into the permission for hip hop to evolve out of strictly reflecting verisimilitude into other things. But because it was autobiographical the entire time, while hip hop went on this road to rewrite the fundamental underpinnings of consumer preference and therefore consumer economy, what you get is also the playbook, the self-referencing playbook on how people did it. And so when 50 does a vitamin water deal, or when Jay-Z gets the Stock Carter collection off the ground, or when all of these things happen, Yeezy, Yeezy, Yeezy just jumped over Jumpman. I mean, the guy is literally talking about the stock ticker. He's talking about the stock ticker, right? And so because these things are happening at once, being reported at once, and they are the tomes that people are studying people that love the art form number one but also who are curious about the business the record is right there on how this all happened and so when you get to a moment where a a great american art form has become this unstoppable cultural and economic force And you can read the entire playbook for yourself, right? If you're dedicated enough, you can sit down and read HBR case studies, or you can listen to Jay-Z's catalog and you can get roughly the same lessons, right? Um, Because all that has happened, I think that makes it the most exciting time right now to consider the future of hip-hop. Because the future of hip-hop is decidedly not only American, right? Because this playbook... So, for example, you and I met up in, in... johannesburg and after i was done you know wearing my suit around and talking about all the smart stuff and i really got into cultural discovery mode i walked around johannesburg and i saw uh, an entire generation of kids who had their own art form to present in this case i'm a piano but they had learned all of the lessons of hip-hop so they were canonizing every single thing that they did they had cameras they had mics they had this they had that they understood the grammar of of hip-hop they understood how to tell stories and crucially they knew the story of run dmc they knew that the million dollar check that adidas wrote to run dmc paled in comparison to the 50 50 deal that they did 35 years later with kanye west and they aspire toward that so the lessons of hip-hop are playing out in this completely adjacent cultural expression and what you get now is a bad bunny, right? Who grew up in hip hop, speaks 16 words of English, who's able to headline Coachella and be the biggest artist in the world. What you get is an entire generation of people from all around the globe who have all been raised on the same playbook, who all have their own individuated cultural sets of cultural expression. And it's all going to feel like hip hop. It's going to behave like hip hop. And I wonder whether or not you know the boom bap and the four four time and bars and hooks is really going to be a limitation for hip hop moving forward or not. I would like to think that as a political and aesthetic movement, it
1: wouldn't. Great, great, stuff, Chaucer. So uh, let me. I'm, I'm going to agree with you on something. And I'm going to question you on something. So at any oh. give, at any given moment in time music is a reflection of the moment in culture mm-hmm. so we go back and we look at the 60s in particular and i was at lunch today and talking about a friend of mine's going to newport and i was saying you know when dylan went from acoustic to electric you know that was a big deal that was a moment right. in time and a, and a transition signal to switch from music exactly right what you said that's interesting here and different is it that hip hop comes much more out of life experience and biographical experience. Yeah, uh, it's a biographical record. Mm-hmm. Tells a story in a different way. Do you think that's a big reason why it's so deeply embedded, not only into culture now, but also has transferred and crossed a bridge into commerce and beyond? I think that's part of it. I think that's
0: also what makes it so replicatable, right? Um, look, take take things that people know about. You don't have to go into every single, you know, socioeconomic niche to find something that reinforces this thought. The experience that was so beautifully captured in uh, in the movie Eight Mile, right? Here's white kids growing up in this place in Detroit. Hip hop is his native tongue, but he's white. And he's small. People take advantage of him and blah, 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 blah. That is nothing but, I don't know, the Rocky story, the Rudy story. You've seen that narrative a million times. And it played out in such a way that, I mean, on a, on a grand stage where his unique experience and his his, uh, his ability to project that unique experience was not about, yo, you should be like me because I'm so cool. It was, I have described this i have put you in this world with the efficiency and the impact of a hemingway and so when once people can appreciate the art form then they can start to discover all of these other cultural realities that that they never uh could have considered before right so once you're into the music now this becomes your global passport, if you will, to 8 Mile in Detroit or Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn for Biggie or and, 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 and. And the fact that it was autobiographical and the fact that it was so easy to follow made it such that anyone who could follow the basic grammar of hip hop got to tell their story. And because hip hop is a meritocracy in ways that other things might not be, (laughs) not even just other musical forms, right? But also So, I mean, think about it in the last 10 years, right? This is the entire thesis of United Masters. The cost of production has dropped so far that almost anybody can have a voice in music, right? The cost of distribution has dropped so far. The cost of what it takes to actually make something that is ready for human consumption means that more people can do it than ever before. And so now in that scenario of oversupply, there is still the meritocratic elements of how do I become more deserving of attention? And that fight, that constant fight, and the notion that even if the cream doesn't always rise to the top, and I'm using air quotes for everybody listening, the top is not necessarily the billboard. The top can be the top of my personal playlist, right? And there are plenty of artists all around the world who can cultivate a small, potent hive of listeners, of fans, and ultimately of customers. And because all that is happening, you know, frankly, on the back of hip hop and against the backdrop of these sweeping technological changes and these sweeping cultural changes, um, you know, A, it's here to stay. (laughs) Um, And B, I think that is to your question about, is that how it bled into commerce? Yeah, there was a user guide, right? So it wasn't just that the barrier drop. It was also that somebody actually printed you the IKEA manual for how to put it together.
1: So, so interesting. I, I, Biggie Smalls I, I, wrote the handbook
0: for how to do retail crack sales. It's called 10 crack commandments, but for every single one of those, there's something else that's instructing you on how to move as Jay would say in a room full of vultures. So yeah, it's, um, it's a playbook and an artistic expression at the same time. And that's why it's so indefatigable. A-
1: absolutely. Incredibly. Yeah, I grew up in Queens and, when I was going to school, that was the era when barriers were being broken and kids were being bussed around so that the schools would be mixed. I was in Bayside, which was pretty white and Asian. And there were a lot of kids that came from Jamaica and Hollis and a lot of those areas that came into our schools. And my mom would always say if someone doesn't used to walk home for lunch then. And my mom would always say, if someone doesn't have money for lunch, you could bring them home. And I would always bring a friend home for lunch. And I told the story when we were in Africa at uh, in Orange Farm at, at uh, Education Africa School. And the beauty mm. of kids is kids don't see color. Kids just see other kids. And yeah. and most people change over time. But you know, when I would bring my friends home, a lot of whom were from Jamaica in Queens, not Jamaica, the island uh, you know, those, a lot of those kids I'm still friends with today. And I always credit my mother for being the one who opened my eyes to that. And, and I stayed that way and most of us don't, but I, I think the authenticity of what you're talking about, that's what really has done it. I just can't believe it's been 50 years already. Cause I, I sort of remember the beginning and I guess that means I'm older than I think I am.
0: Yeah. that happens to us all after a certain point. Hey, shout out to Good Lady Moms, man. Way, uh, to, way to be on the shoulders of giants that pointed you
1: in the right direction. Uh, absolutely. You major in philosophy at Gettysburg um, mm-hmm. and spend some time working at two great agencies, both of whom really progressive, uh, very different, but also kind of the same in a way, Widen, and Kennedy and Martin. I'd okay. love to go back and talk about uh, Wyden & Kennedy, great, great shop, uh, uh, yeah. legendary in so many ways. I know you mentioned Portland earlier. I'm going to guess that's where you met your wife out there when you were at Wyden & Kennedy. Uh, On the Wieden deck, as a matter of fact. And, and, and just go back to those days and how sort of the major in philosophy, how that has stayed with you and really uh, uh been you know i think it's really a part of who you are i majored in sociology and political science that's a part of mm-hmm. who i am i, I can tell mm-hmm. just in our conversation here you know that you're a thinker and then that philosophy and all that reading you did of other great thinkers some of that has permeated and made its way into your brain and stayed there
0: yeah man, i'm happy to happy to get into that it's funny that you would even pitch the question into philosophy because I've told the story of how I got in advertising a bunch of times, but nobody ever asked me about philosophy and how it plays out today. So uh, I'll spend a little bit more time on that. Look, I didn't study philosophy because I had some, d- d- I had read Emerson early and just wanted to spend all my time on it. It was the one place when I got to Gettysburg, it was the one department in which I felt like there was somebody there to usher me on a path of creating something net new, creating new knowledge, not just consuming knowledge that they already had. And uh, I discovered it because I did an independent study. I just did it like a semester of an independent study. And I wanted to, I can't remember what it was about, but my advisor through that independent study gave me all these other things to read that really complicated my thinking about whatever the task was. And I just stuck around in the department because those were where the classes I wanted to take were. So then when I kind of, and nearing graduation as a philosophy major and I have to write a thesis and do all that stuff. I don't have any sense that this is gonna play out in any kind of career path. At very best, the practical side of me was thinking, all right, well, what do most philosophy majors do? They go to law school. So I kind of had that on the back burner, I guess. Um, But really, I just enjoyed being able to determine my own line of inquiry I love the idea of really getting my own take, my own sense of what was true, so watertight that it could survive an attack, right? Like I like the, the kind of contact sport of, of like intellectual pugilism that would then get me to write something down that I really believed in, and I really thought was watertight. Um, I left school and I got out and it was like, all right, well. I had this band in college. (laughs) I was the MC and I had this music director. All the other players went off to wall street or did whatever they were going to do. And the music director and I were kind of sitting around like, well, what are we supposed to do? Well, let's go play music. That's what took us to Portland, Oregon. And within a year I had that, I had a new songbook, and we had created this new band and it was doing really well. And I needed a day job. And the long story short is I wound up in Dan Wyden's office. Um, someone that I was doing kind of informationals with connected me to someone else who connected me to someone else. And I just wind up in the office of Wyden and Kennedy and then later in Dan's office. And we don't know what we want from each other at best. I was thinking like, maybe I can book a gig in this beautiful office that I didn't even I, like, what is this? Um, We spent an hour and a half together. And in that hour and a half, I played him a record. And along the way he said, Well, kid, if you can do that, you can write a Nike ad. And he walked me out and he introduced me to his head of recruiting, Mel Myers at the time. And uh, through uh, over the next couple of months, just by kind of going back around and having his co-sign, the media chief there, Lawrence Tarani Ami, hired me. And he hired me with the full understanding that he was going to train me in the media game in exchange for me bringing the authenticity of being a working DIY artist to the table. Um, and you know, this is 2004, maybe five. Uh, I start working on Converse. I get a couple minor hits there. I get really fluent in everything digital because nobody wanted to do it, and they were like, "Give it to the kid." Um, and then like anything else, like any other uh, change in the guard, digital became a big deal, and clients really wanted digital expressions and interactive expressions of their brands. And a lot of the kind of middle managers, the executives at, at Widen and Kennedy really wanted this digital transformation and everybody in the middle didn't. And they were like, look, I'm really comfortable making TV spots. My grandma's going to see trafficking TV spots. My grandma's going to see. And so it just really created a great opportunity for myself and maybe five or six other, not even that's just in my department, like maybe 20 of us. Who were kind of at the lower rungs of the org chart at the time really got an opportunity to rise as a result of this kind of delta between the expectations of clients and executives and the rank and file of people that just want to come make killer tv ads like their heroes um and so you know i developed that toolkit and at this point i'm not using any philosophy other than the logic of how to create a pivot table um got in digital strategy, won a couple awards here and there, did some notable work. And when I went to Martin, I went to Martin following one guy. I went to Martin following John Norman. John Norman at Wyden had done the Right the Future campaign uh, for World Cup, for Nike World Cup in 2010. And I was like, whoever's doing that, that's, that's who I want to rock with. And so I go over there, I join the creative department. I'm reporting directly to him. Nobody knows what I'm there to do. He's new to the job. He's walking around looking like Bon Jovi. They're walking around looking like a Bob Evans commercial. Like it just, it was, it was a cool time because there was a lot of tension between these realities, right? You got these big red state brands and you got this Bauhaus standard. I don't know if your listeners know who John Norman is, but you know, like if, if you, if it looks like John Bon Jovi and it has, you know, the, the aesthetic standards of, I don't know, whatever great designer, that's John Norman, right? And so it was cool for a minute until he left. And I just got the sense that as much as I had appreciated my little bit of time, this is before Kristen and all the people who have now taken over, I didn't know it was kind of rotten to the core and was going to have to be ultimately reset. But I didn't have the sense that I was going to be able to do that thing that I really wanted to do. And I also was discovering that my toolkit was so round by this time, right? Media planning, digital strategy, creative, that I really wanted to bundle all of those disciplines into one practice. And I wanted that practice to be focused on elevating things that I cared about. I didn't have any real stake in geico carving another point or writing a funny gecko thing for the gecko to say or you know get get adding a couple basis points for pizza hut or getting the the pepperoncini muffin or whatever they were going to make up and gone and so that was what made me a really ripe target for the seduction by translation
1: Great stuff. Let, let's not leave White and Kennedy uh, or Martin just yet. And I love when you mentioned Bob Evans, because I was very close with the late Mike Hughes and he said <laughs> Bob Evans. And that made me think of Mike. Who, was by, the top- by the way,
0: Mike Hughes was, became a, an instant hero of mine. He was kind of pulling back at the time.
1: Yeah,
0: um, But I if he had Mike. been in any kind of, if he had stayed in, it would have been a different scenario. Great yeah. guy. And obviously brilliant. Brilliant.
1: I was right. on the, the board years ago when Rick Boyko was running the VCU Brand Center. He had led this great campaign. It started out of the offices of Martin. And mm-hmm. Rick led this great campaign. And they took a building that I think at one point was an old horse stable and they turned it into the Brand Center building, this beautiful, beautiful building that they built that's still there now. And uh, IPG had made a big donation. They were really the only holding company that stepped up and donated money to this incredible farm system of talent. And they named it Mike. So they they made it named it Mike Hughes Hall. And a lot of us went down for the ceremony. Mike was still alive at the time and Michael Roth and all the IPG people were there. And it was a really nice day. And Mike made this great speech where he said he had a friend, I don't remember his name, for sake of conversation we'll say it was Tony Hall. His last name was Hall. And mm-hmm. Mike Hughes said and he, my friend Tony is here and he thinks Mike Hughes hall was named after him. And it was just such a funny line, you know, to say he was such a special guy. We Dan, don't know people like that. That's great. Wyden and Kennedy, Dan and David, also special guys, both were around and still going at full tilt when you were there. Give mm-hmm. us some reflections on those two giants. Cause we don't really have a lot of guys like or gals left like that in the industry.
0: Yeah, I mean look, Dan was a Dan was a one of one um in in my story, in part because and you know, I talk about him a lot because a lot of people know him. Um, but there are really two sides to the equation that really made it him what he was to my life was that not only did he as any great creat great, great train creative. Uh, would be not only was he able to recognize the transferability of my skills, not as a philosopher, as an MC, um, but he also took the onus to create the sandbox in which I could learn that, right? So he gave me the confidence by making the observation. And then he gave me the opportunity, the observation and the opportunity. And I think that that is now I didn't know at the time he was standing up at the four A's and talking about you know, middle, upper middle-class white kids selling shoes to black kids. And again, I didn't know what that he had this kind of DE&I agenda prior to that. I knew this was a guy who was whose interest was piqued by the fact that I even made it to him and who spent the time to, with me to figure out what it was. And that kind of curiosity and that kind of action off the back of finding something of value, like just that the action on that curiosity is what defined him for me so one of the things that i often recall for teams now that i didn't know was so meaningful at the time was watching dan kill work in front of the entire agency i mean this was uh i don't want to get anybody in trouble there's a there was an old spice spot i mean this thing was like done it was color corrected it had a iski code we're playing it in the Atrium, as in, like, this is what's gonna this is gonna be in the game Sunday, be ready, kind of thing. And Dan walks out, takes the mic, and kills it. This is this shop isn't gonna make that. Obviously, it just played, so this shop just did make that. (laughs) And he goes, Yeah, I'm just gonna call I'm gonna call Mark and trust me, this is not coming out because this is not the caliber work that is gonna be done here. And you know, it would take me 15 years in this industry to understand that that's why independence was such a reverberating call in those hallways. I didn't, I couldn't make all those connections at first, but I was growing up natively speaking this language of independence, um, watching someone's principles outweigh their practicum. And that model, again, the observation and then the action. Um, that was what it was like to be around Dan all the time. And even when I left, I I remember watching Dan go through, I went to go tell him, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing and blah, blah, blah. And I watched him go through every single stage of grief. At first he was like, who did what I want to know. Right. And I was like, no, it's actually, I'm really excited about the next step and blah, 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 blah. blah. And I watched him kind of combinate through all these things, because it's not like we, we didn't have a, we had like a yearly check-in. And at this point I had stature within the agency. So I wasn't just some kid tucked away in a closet. Like he knew I had profile and he knew he was seeing me in meetings that I know made him proud. I know now that that made him incredibly proud to see me in a meeting with, you know, actually holding court with Travis Knight and Phil Knight and in the head of the American Indian college fund and being in a room with David Kennedy and like, and so I think his assumption was that somehow someone had made it inhospitable for me and nothing could have been further than the truth. What he actually provided me was the platform from which to die from and the courage and the ambition to go past that frontier. And once he became convinced of that, he said, what was the last thing he ever said to me? Uh, which were these words. <laughs> well, they're as profound as, well, hell kid, if you can do that, you can write a Nike ad. He said, well, I built this place to set creativity free. Not to hold it captive. I mean this guy said that to me. Looked me in my face and said that. Like you'd think you'd think that was scripted, right? Yeah. How funny would it be if like this comes out and like 30 people call me like, "Yeah, he said that to me too." That's his line.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it not. felt
0: it felt absolutely customized and, you know, that's the legacy of that man through the prism of Chaucer Barnes for sure here's a guy that no detail was too small for no mountain was too high. Um, and who, you know, I, I, I endeavor to live up to his legacy every day. Uh, um, wow. and as far as David goes, man, I asked Dave to marry me, <laughs> to marry me and my wife in part, cause we had met on the widened deck <laughs> and I had become close to David by that time he demurred, but, um, but yeah i mean these are these are giants and i am so so privileged to um uh, to be to have been born in that nest
1: well that that little anecdote you shared earlier about the first meeting and you were then a young kid in your 20s and that he gave you 90 minutes i think that says everything you need to by the way
0: that was the of. funny the funniest part about it was that it wasn't script obviously it wasn't structured for 90 minutes he had he kept going to the door and telling mary it was like give me 15 more minutes give me 15 more minutes I actually had to end the meeting. I was like, I got this job. I'm on my lunch break. I got to go, bro. Right. That's Uh,
1: fantastic. Yeah, that was cool. So let's talk about the journey to another great independent spirit uh, and a great thinker, Steve Stout, and the journey to translation and United Masters. Go back. Give us the story. How did it happen? Did He found found you. You found him. You knew each other. Give us the origin story.
0: Well, actually... uh, one of my partners I was shopping with, um, and though we 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 don't keep up as much as I like, but, but a dear friend, uh Willis Sparza had met Steve in New York. And we were kind of shopping, thinking about taking our next leap together. And um he comes back to Richmond, he's like, Yo, oh, man, you gotta go meet Steve Stout. And I'm like, mm, I don't know, bro. Steve Stout, like Steve Stout, who the 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 rap mogul? Because I'm thinking unfairly. As it would turn out, that he is moonlighting in advertising. I don't know his book of work yet. Uh, I don't know that he brought the State Farm jingle back and like did. I'm loving it from McDonald. I don't know any of that. I just know he's like this power player that I know from the halls of hip hop, the hallowed halls of hip hop. But still, like you're not. I grew. You know, uh, the here were my bosses, Dan Wyden and David and and. Lawrence Tarani I mean these titans of this thing and like you you don't get to come in and like softball this so I was a little uh suspicious I guess he coaxed me he coaxed me he coaxed me finally we set up a meeting and I go to New York or I get to the office and Stout's not there and he had some crazy rock star reason why he wasn't there it was like I'm getting my hair cut by these Peruvian Sherpas and whatever. He wasn't there. And so his staff is running around trying to like shove all these other executives in front of me. And I'm like, see, this is what I'm talking about. I'm not here to to do this rap thing. I was just really at that point like as a hip hop fan, this is somebody I want to know, but I'm not thinking about a job here. Meet the chief creative officer, not super impressed. Meet the president, not super impressed. Then I meet the strategy guy. And it was like, everything went slow-mo and sparkles were hanging in the air. I mean, this guy was just so shimmeringly bright that it was just, it was just, it was, it was a gravitational pull. So we just become email bros and we get this email chain going over the next couple of months. Um, And long story short, I'm talking about months. I wasn't thinking about coming to translation at all, but I was super engaged with this guy. We we're sharing links back and forth and talking about stuff. We were bumping into at work and, uh, and eventually they had closed unbeknownst to me, they had closed, um, but light and they were going on a big hiring spree and he took snippets from the email chain and said, what if this was a job description? Would you take that job? Which I was like, okay, that's artsy. And then from there, I got, I guess I got a little bit more interested in coming to work specifically for him. Less Steve Stout, more of this guy. His name is John Green. He's a great collaborator of mine to this day and an inspiration every day. Um, and so I come in, and lo and behold, he shows me the strategic framework for Budweiser made in America. And it was just like lights out, boom. Oh, oh, we're taking big Americana staples and rolling out the red carpet to invite a whole new diverse generation into you know, feeling like they own a piece of Americana right as they are about to put their first president in the White House again and, 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 and it's going to be fly, forget it. And I jumped in with both feet from there. Um, and after I signed my paperwork, I had my first call with Steve. <laughs> um, and class in classic Steve style, he was doing something else. He was getting a pedicure and he was distracted and a lot of stuff was going on. Um, but when I got here, you know, I hit the ground running. I started developing this new uh, discipline here called context strategy. And it's like anything else that you pilot, right? You say it out loud and people are like, I don't know what that is, but I probably don't need it. And you kind of got to shop it around a little bit and find little moments of incision. And pretty soon we had some, some pretty big hits on our hands. We had, you know, we were moving the nets and obviously I I had nothing to do with Budweiser uh, made in America season one, but then like by season two and we're getting great stuff done. Cliff Paul and Chris Paul for uh, State Farm. There were some big, big smashes up front that really gave me the momentum to a get close to Steve and really become uh you know baptized in the translation way. Even as I I was kind of co-authoring it, building this new discipline, you know, the idea of culture forward is the play, push culture forward. Um that was a that was appealing. Uh, not just to swim in but to also you know be able to contribute to and you know I've been stuck on that dope ever since
1: great story and and uh, uh my experience is far lesser than yours but with steve quite similar i remember going to a meeting at the office and he wasn't wearing shoes he, i think his feet were up classic and, steve style move and uh, okay and, and but it was great i love we did a great <laughs> dinner together a couple years ago and Always, always thrilled to have him on our stage anytime, which he knows. Talk about the evolution of translation and United Masters. You've been there now over ten years. Yeah, yeah. Very different company today from when, what you joined. Very different company. We we when
0: I first joined translation, it was a thesis that had momentum. Um. You know, I think the marketplace was re- was finally kind of coming around. To You had this change in the guard on the client side. You had um, this these moments where these big brand, these humongous brands were just meeting the top of any kind of performance. And they just didn't know what lever to pull. He had a compelling idea. But as you look at the, the early days of Steve Stout and translation, these are all things that are really tough to monetize immensely culturally impactful but really tough to monetize as an agency right you build the first you know signature shoe for a non-athlete that works in the S Carter, and then you come back and you do the g unit and it goes way way bigger and then you come back and you do the ice creams of course from a trophy standpoint you get to look at pharrell williams today running louis vuitton and go yeah i contributed to that but it's really tough to monetize that as an agency, right? What, what what are your standing strategists, copywriters, art directors, program project managers, etc., doing for Reebok? Once you once you put those two elements together, hey, Jay Z, Reebok, no, it's not going to make you run or jump or shoot faster, but you are going to look fly, and these shoes will match your hat. Uh, same thing with McDonald's. I'm loving it. Like, okay, you made a jingle, you made you even made the record chart, awesome. Wrigley's again, like when I joined translation, it was really starting to be built out as okay, we're going to build our own production department. We're going to make these, uh, whatever, uh, state farm jingle ads. We're going to make this Bud Light Super Bowl work. We're going to do this instead of, you know, I'm going to call Hype Williams, right? So it was this period of expansion for translation, really just growing up as like the adolescence of the company, right? Like, okay, now it's the height it's gonna be, He's figured some stuff out, knows better knows better about procurement and all of the kind of grammar of the ad agency world. And over the years, translation has had fits and starts. Right now we are in an absolute bull run, creatively, revenue-wise, partner-wise, like, you know, all eyes up, it's great. Um, but in 2013, our entire thesis, right, is, is the brands that lead culture fare better than brands that follow culture. And there used to be a time where understanding where culture was going was really about no more than understanding what young people were even listening to. So the one of the central theses of, of Steve's, Steve's book, uh, or one of the takeaways from Steve's book, The Tanning of America is, if you give me the census form for this user, and the Spotify history for this user, I'm gonna choose the Spotify history every single time. If I want to understand what jeans they wanna buy, what car they wanna drive, what blah, 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 right? That, the, that what people consume shapes who they are way more so than what county they were born to, what parents they were born to. And what we were seeing in the mid-teens was, number one, this ain't the old days where some gatekeepers whose names you don't know decide what goes on 106 in part, what goes on the radio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The titans of pop, the coming titans of pop culture are going to be self-made and their audiences are going to put them there. It's not going to be because some old guy with some headphones on closed his eyes and tilted his head and said, yeah, that's a hit. And as a result, you were watching so many people come into the creative arts. We were watching this in photography with Instagram. We were watching this with film creation, with YouTube. And it's just like, Youth culture is no longer about what you consume, it's about what you create. And if we're going to understand and we're going to be able to see around the corner, then we have to get closer to the creation than ever before. Also at that time, we saw a real opportunity to write a historical economic and moral wrong, which was the historic predation of the record label system on the creative class. And so when those two things came together and we began to raise capital for United Masters, the thinking was only this. One, we are going to ensure that the next generation of cultural titans in music own their work and they expect to own their work no matter what format changes come as a result. So there will never be another ringtone era where the person who's really behind the cultural capital is not enjoying the financial capital. There won't be that. We were also convinced that the supply was going to so overrun the tank that it was the the supply was going to so overrun the boundaries of what the labels could even do that there had to be some other business to be built within music that wasn't just about snatching somebody's rights away, monetizing them to all hell and paying them just enough that they don't, you know, whatever, walk in your office and do something violent. And so we recognized our historic relationship with brands as the perfect intersection waiting to happen. So you get these big brands that are trying to grow, trying to grow via leading culture and you have sports, which is really easy for brands to buy into. There's so many avenues, right? You can write seven different checks in sports and have something else, have something else happen for you. And the music, which was this, completely opaque pool where everybody knew this was what set the cultural agenda even more so than sports but they didn't know how to buy in except for buying the very very point zero 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 one artist and then like making them hold your can of Pepsi or whatever. No shot no shade of Pepsi. We're just coming off some great Pepsi work. Shout out to Todd Kaplan. <laughs> um but when those two things came together we started raising money for United Masters. We didn't know exactly what we were going to build but we knew the outcome we wanted to deliver independence can be the default setting for music around the world. The creative class who issues the cultural capital will prince will be the principal beneficiaries, of the financial capital, the results, and the brands that really want to get in and lead culture are going to work directly with these creators. And, you know, you fast forward a couple of years, a couple of iterations of the product, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now you get to United masters as a, flourishing community of 2 million artists, a hundred thousand of which are active at any given time. A smaller subset of those are really getting white glove service from us, you know, global tours and prestige appointments and, you know, big deal creative work and movie scores and this, that, and the other. And you also have this corpus of data, this signal set that shows you where youth all around the world are putting their time, what brands they care about, what they care to mention, where they're getting picked up, like where their listenership is coming from. It's not just their hometown. And you have this community of these creative entrepreneurs who not only need assistance because they might become Chance the Rapper, they might need assistance to become Chaucer Barnes. And the notion that What it took for me to sit in Dan Wyden's office, what it took for me to even get there, can now be scaled, right? And that opportunity to learn that your skills are transferable or to just pick up other skills that are gonna assist you on your entrepreneurial journey, whether you make it in music or not, is so fulfilling to me. It's so magical to me to be able to return that favor, not just by the people I let into my office but by the very tenor of what it is that we've created and the product stack and the community that has responded to that uh, is, is just a terrific point of pride.
1: That's fantastic and, and as a musician, I'm sure. You know, one of my, I, don't, I probably watch less than the average person, but one of the movies that I watched uh, and I've watched it a few times, I'm a huge fan of Sam Cook. and there's a great great film the twin killings of sam cook and what the title of the movie refers to is not only was he shot and killed and murdered at the age of 33 but he also died not owning anything and his family received nothing after he died he owned none of his publishing none of his music nothing and that was true of so many artists of that era of the when you go back and look at the early blues artists the only early r&b artists you know the ones who have made money uh, are far fewer and that was true of a lot of the white rock and rollers also not just a lot of the british acts, yeah absolutely you know when the stones you know alan klein stole all their money you know and still abco still owns a lot of the publishing uh, of the early stone stuff and uh, to this day. But uh, I love what you're doing there to protect the economic future of independent artists and creative and that you've grown this thing to a community of 2 million and an active 100,000 at any given moment in time. That's a great yeah, it's thing. A special that's thing that's, there's a lot to be proud of there, Chaucer.
0: I mean, it's a special thing. And look, I think and we're just starting to move into this space now with any kind of, you know, Diageo, Ally, these are brands that are meaningfully invested. Maybe even, well, I can't announce them yet, Uh, but there are major brands that are meaningfully invested in helping these artists at scale because they recognize that it future proofs their business. So think about it. If you are, you know, if we don't just control the music, we control the wallet for these artists, right? These artists are literally taking their royalties down from our software. So why wouldn't somebody? who is in the business of getting people high yield savings accounts, want to partner directly with us to be able to reach this new creative entrepreneur in a lean forward moment, not just catch them on Instagram, but catch them when they're really, you know, decisioning on how they're going to invest in their business and themselves. These are opportunities that are only becoming more prevalent. And my, the next chapter is really bringing brands more to bear to support this independent music movement in ways that we cannot see in music today, but we can see some green shoots of in sports, right? So when you look at the Phoenix suns out there uh, and and the Mercury, by the way, um, when you look at the way that Verizon has gone in and, and through their practice facility, created a narrative for Verizon that 5G has these applications that changed the fortunes of a franchise, right? Three, four years, build this practice facility. These guys go from from 11th in the West to a finals contender. And now they are creating technology that can now be licensed out to everybody else who wants to get a couple of weeks ahead of a spur, a bone spur or a fracture or what have you. That same kind of thinking is going to come to music. And we're not going to own it all but we are going to be its loudest and proudest usher uh, because the, the fruit for everyone, the modern marketer who wants to leave her fingerprint on pop culture and that creator in her basement right now who's trying to do the same thing, they're, they have never been better aligned in terms of incentives than they are today. And, and we're resolute on creating that pathway for their shared success.
1: I love it. And you are right at the crossroads of that conversation. And, and By the right, way,
0: how bad is the ba- is the background music? <laughs> is the background noise here?
1: Oh, not bad at all. No, no, you sound good.
0: Okay, great. We've got a, all hands going
1: on, apparently. No, no, uh, no, it's fine. There's a lot of applause. And, it feels like it's for me. I, it would have been nice if the applause was for me, but, you know. And, and we will not edit this. This will run just like it is. So... <laughs> Uh, as we start to wrap, because I could go on talking to you for a long time, uh, I would think that the opportunity for you and what you've built, Chaucer, is not just the U.S., but you know, but global. Uh, are you looking at you know all the music that's coming out of Nigeria and a lot of other places? It's not just about America anymore.
0: No, sir, it's not. We are active uh, all over the globe, especially with our kind of. Managed services division. We've got feet on the ground in Lagos, Soweto, Medellin, all Rio, everywhere. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier Bad Bonnie. Look, man, I took my kid to Coachella this year and it was it was wild. It was wild to see a bunch of young white, primarily women who clearly are from 400 to 700 K households singing everywhere, (laughs) Bad Bunny, Rosalia and Burna Boy. I mean, it was just, it's nuts. Um, And so, you know, your your hip hop fluent listeners will really appreciate this. The global South has something to say. They got something to say, and we're going to make sure that this opportunity is for them as well. It's very clear where the puck is going in terms of globalized cultural creation and uh, the consumer markets are really opening up. If you if you go, as I mentioned, like the kids in Johannesburg making, making um, music in Johannesburg, they know that the ears that they really need to get to are Berlin, Sydney, Los Angeles, London. And they're clear on that. And so we want to assist that global spread um, while ensuring that people who are coming into the music industry for the first time, no matter where they start, are coming in with the expectations that they're gonna own the underlying asset. Um, so yeah, yeah the, the short answer to that is yes, we are a global company today. Whether the platform rolls out in different territories, there's a lot of uh, tech, technical limitations there that make us wanna measure thrice and cut once, but United Masters is already global. We're working South Korean records just as much as we're working records out of Memphis.
1: Fantastic. Well, I I love the story. I'm really glad that the business has evolved and is doing well. I know Steve in translation a long time and, and to do what you do and be as passionate as you are about the business and really embracing it in so many ways, leading culture, that doesn't always translate into the business being a good business and that you've navigated, you know, those rocky waters and turbulence and that the business is, you know, doing great. I'm really glad to hear that. I want you guys to be around a long time and be healthy. And uh, you, and you are, you're a young man, 43. You got a lot ahead of you. I mean, this is, uh, this has got to be an exciting time for you.
0: Look, I, yeah, I definitely got some mileage, um, uh, but yeah, I'm trying to live in the present and you're right. The present uh, is more stocked with blessings than anything else. Um, so I'm trying to count those and collect more. Fantastic. Thank you on behalf of the entire UMT organization. We appreciate your support and, frankly, even just your attention. We appreciate you rooting for
1: us. Hey, man. Uh, uh, always. Well, thanks so much for doing this. It was a real pleasure and loved having you. Can't wait to see you again, brother.